0: Well, if you have a Bible there with you, if you want to turn to the book of 2 Timothy, we are starting a brand new series sermon series this morning in the book of 2 Timothy, Paul's second letter to uh, to Timothy, and if you're able to do so, I'll invite you to stand for the reading of God's word. 2 Timothy chapter 1, we're going to read verses 1 through 7 today. I'll give ear to God's word. It says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, according to the promise of the life of Uh, That is in Christ Jesus to Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God, the father in Christ Jesus, our Lord. I thank God whom I serve as I did, as did my ancestors with a clear conscience. As I remember you constantly in my prayers, night and day, as I remember your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother, Lois, and your mother, Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying one of my hands. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Well, if you've been here for a little while, you probably remember that we went through uh, First Timothy not so long ago. And, and part of my rationale for that was, uh, a number of months ago, we finally completed the process of becoming particularized. In other words, we became our own self-governing church in the PCA. And so I thought, uh, you know, there's so much about the church uh, and elders and deacons and all these things that First Timothy has to teach us that that would be a good thing for us as a church to go through together. And my 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 plan, which doesn't always come to pass, but in this case it seems to be thankfully, was to at some point go into Second Timothy. Because there's so much more in that book to kind of complete the, the picture, so to speak. So I thought that would be a good idea to do that. Uh, you might recall 1 Timothy. There is a, you might call it a purpose statement in the letter. Paul tells Timothy why he wrote it. And that is found in, in the previous book. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 through 15, Paul tells Timothy why he wrote 1 Timothy, the first book that we looked at a number of months ago. He says, I hope to come to you soon. He wasn't with him at the time, Uh, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. So there he gives us in in very short order a snapshot of what the church is supposed to be, how you and I are to view the church uh, and how we are to conduct ourselves within it, both officers and members alike. You know, I I dare say if more churches took Paul's inspired instructions to heart in both these letters, it's certain that the church in our day would be in a much healthier condition uh, and would be much more useful to the Lord Jesus in building his kingdom uh, in this world. So we finished 1 Timothy a number of, of months ago. We certainly didn't go through it in an exhaustive way. It may have felt exhaustive to some of you, but it wasn't, I don't think, quite exhaustive. Um, but I thought it'd be best for us to go through 2 Timothy as well. Together, First and Second Timothy and Titus, you might know, they are commonly referred to as the pastoral epistles. And the reason for that is they primarily deal with instructions to Timothy and Titus, young protege pastors, so to speak, of the Apostle Paul, in instructing them on how they are to do things in the church, how they are to carry out their ministry within the church. And there's a lot left uh, for us to learn I think in Second Timothy about the nature of pastoral ministry in particular and about the nature of preaching and the necessity of it. And so I think it's good not just for pastors, aspiring pastors, elders, and others to know, but also for the members of any congregation to know these things clearly as well. The epistle of Paul that we're looking at now is, I think, going to help us all to have a right view of, of, the, of the gospel ministry. You know, and, and as a pastor and as church members, I think it's very helpful to say the least that we all be on the same page of what that is. What is the gospel ministry of a pastor, an elder to look like? What should it be characterized by? It always helps if we're on the same page with that and have the same expectations for that. And so hopefully this book will be something that reforms and, and renews our minds and changes us even as a church in a way that is pleasing to God. Well, it doesn't take much time. This is a very short book. It's only four chapters long. It doesn't take long when you read this book. If you were to sit down this afternoon, I know you've probably read it before a number of times, but if you were to sit down and read first or second Timothy rather in one sitting, I I think you'll notice a pretty big difference in tone between first Timothy and second Timothy. A lot of the same doctrine, but but the tone of these letters could not be more different. And that is because Paul's circumstances in writing 2 Timothy were very much different than they were when he wrote the previous epistle. Not only did Paul write 2 Timothy from a prison cell. Remember in verse, uh, verse 8 of chapter 1 he calls himself the prisoner of Christ. He was in jail but who was, who was he in jail for? And who was sovereign over that imprisonment? He calls himself Christ's prisoner in chapter 1 verse 8. He mentions in chapter 2, verse 9, that he was, quote, bound with chains as a criminal. For what? For preaching the gospel. They charged him of something else. That's what they always do. It's what they did to Jesus Christ as well, right? But the real reason he was in chains was his ministry in the gospel. But he also tells Timothy towards the end of the letter in chapter 4, verses 6 through 8, that his time was short. This, this could very well be the last letter he ever wrote. Certainly maybe the last one he wrote to Timothy towards the very end of this letter in chapter 4, verses 6-8. through eight, Paul says this, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. So Paul is telling Timothy to hurry up and come to him as soon as he can. And the reason for that is he knows his time is short. He's not going to be here uh, in, in, in the flesh much longer. So Timothy knew, you know, you figure Timothy no doubt knew that he was to take heed, very serious heed to whatever Paul wrote to him. But in this particular case, Paul's words to him about his impending death couldn't help but add a kind of uh, more more gravity and seriousness to what he wrote to him in this letter. In his commentary on 2 Timothy, John Calvin says this. He says, The chief purpose of this letter is to confirm Timothy both in the faith of the gospel and in his pure and constant preaching of it. But the circumstances of the time add a special weight to these exhortations. Paul had before his eyes the death he was ready to suffer as a testimony to the gospel. Thus, all we read here about the kingdom of Christ, the hope of eternal life, the Christian warfare, confidence in the confessing Christ, and the certainty of doctrine should be seen as written not merely in ink but in Paul's lifeblood. For he asserts nothing for which he is not ready to offer the pledge of his death. Thus the epistle may be regarded as a solemn and urgent ratification of Paul's doctrine. Paul knows his death is coming up soon, uh, Lord willing, and in this letter we see nothing changing in his doctrine. If anything else, he's pushing it even more stringently and stridently upon Timothy, pressing it upon him to be faithful to it no matter what comes his way in a manner of suffering. Now, if you knew that you were writing what was likely to be your last correspondence, and nobody writes letters these days, it seems like everybody does email and texting and whatnot, but if you, were, if you knew that you were going to be writing your last correspondence to somebody, whether it was your own time that was short or whether it was their time that was short, what would you say? What would you write? You ever think about Maybe you've had the opportunity to do just that. And what, what kind of thought did you put into what you were going to tell them or what you were going to say? Would you waste time and ink on unimportant matters? Or would you be sure to write the most crucial and vitally important things that they could know? Let that then influence how you view Paul's instructions in this epistle because that's really what he's doing here in 2 Timothy. He's getting ready in some ways, if I can use the analogy of track and field, he's going to... Paul is going to pass the baton off to Timothy soon. And he wants to be sure that Timothy knows what he is to do and how he is to do it as a minister of the gospel of Christ. In many ways, the things that Paul writes about in this letter, you could say they must have been the things that he viewed as the most important, the most crucial things for Timothy, his son in the faith, to do and to keep in mind. And may we learn to think of these things likewise. So as we go through this book, Try to keep that in mind. That this, you know, Paul's not mincing words here. He's not wasting breath. These are the things he saw, in some ways, for a minister as f- of first importance for him to go on in how he was to serve. Well, the first thing that we see in our text, we're going to look uh, mainly at verses one and two this morning, the opening greeting, and the first thing that we see in in most New Testament epistles from Paul or Peter or James or whatnot is an opening greeting of some kind. Now. I don't know if you're like me, but if you sit down to read one of the epistles, I have to be honest, very often my mind kind of glosses right past the opening greeting. You you read it a number of times, you tell yourself, of course, I know this is from Paul. Of course, I know this is written to Timothy. And so we don't give much thought very often, sometimes, to those things, but I think we should be uh, a little bit uh, slower in how we read it and give some thought even to what Paul says in the opening greeting. Very often, what What the apostles write in their opening greeting sets the tone for what is to follow and kind of sets. It's almost like a prologue of a book in some small, you know, abbreviated manner. He kind of tells you what, what he's going to tell you in some ways. There's a lot that we can learn even from this opening greeting. And so the first thing that Paul does here is identify himself as the author of the letter and as an apostle of Jesus Christ. You know, I won't go into this much, but, you know, through most of church history, Uh, the epistles of Paul to Timothy and to Titus. There was no doubt whatsoever, no one questioned their authenticity as epistles of the Apostle Paul. Uh, In recent centuries, uh, liberal scholars and whatnot, unbelieving scholars really have tried to cast aspersions on that idea, but Paul identifies himself clearly, and we have no reason to to think otherwise of, of who the writer of this book is. But he identifies himself not just as the author, but as an apostle of Christ Jesus. Look at verse 1. He says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus. So Paul, in brief, you know, short order here, claims or, or states three things about his office as an apostle. First and foremost, he says he was an apostle of Christ Jesus. Now, what does that mean? What is an apostle? We use these kinds of words, and sometimes my fault, maybe I guess it is, We don't define our terms. We don't think about it. If someone were to ask you, a non-Christian friend, or somebody were to say, hey, brother or sister, you said the the Apostle Paul. What's that? What is an apostle? Well, the apostles in particular, uh, that is an office of those who were set apart directly by Jesus Christ himself. The book of Acts, chapter 1, rather, gives us kind of the qualifications in some ways they had to be with Christ throughout his earthly ministry they had to see be witnesses of his resurrection and so you could say in some ways well Paul doesn't fit that bill well Paul elsewhere says that he was an apostle born out of due time like it's almost like you have a family you think you're going to have this many kids and later on surprise that was Paul Paul saw himself as an apostle that you know whoa what what's going on here but Paul on the Emmaus on the Damascus Road, rather in Acts chapter nine, was directly commissioned by the risen Christ to be an apostle. The word apostle it, it's related to the, the Greek word that means to send. So these are men that were sent directly by Christ as his direct representatives on this earth, and they have no uh, they have no people that succeeded them. The Pope is not a successor of the apostles. We do not have apostles today we have the doctrine of the apostles in the holy scriptures of the the word of God that is what we have so we do not have apostles anymore but Paul was certainly one, one of them he was an apostle he was sent directly by Christ himself he was endowed with the authority of his office directly by Jesus Christ and again the word apostle means to send so he was sent by Christ to do the things he did and he suffered greatly for it but he was greatly used by God in helping to build the church there are again there are no apostles today if anybody comes to you or you see someone claiming to have that authority or that position uh, they are lying to you they are claiming an authority that is not theirs to claim and they have you can be sure they have not been sent by Christ and you should disregard them they have no authority they have no uh, teaching office from Christ if they claim such a thing um, again we have the teachings of the apostles in the scriptures And that is Christ's words to us through them. The second thing that Paul tells us is that he did not take this office unto himself. Paul, if you read the book of Acts, certainly was not seeking the apostolic office or ministry. He did not put himself forward for the office. He did not volunteer. He was called to it, Paul says here, by what? By the will of God. He was called by the will of God to be an apostle. Again, 1 Corinthians fifteen nine to 10 Paul says this. He tells us that he was the last apostle called by Christ. He calls himself one born out of due time. And then it says he was, quote, the least of the apostles, this is Paul talking, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God, but by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. So Paul did not have a big head. Paul was not uh, of a high opinion of himself. He said he didn't work. He he said according to himself he was not worthy to be called an apostle, and yet Christ called him to be just that. And he uh, worked harder than the rest. He took the fact that he of all people was called to be an apostle, and burned himself out in ministry, all the way to the end because of it. Well, the third the third thing that Paul mentions here in verse one about his apostolic office was that it was quote according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus. It was according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus. Here he reminds us of the heart of the gospel message that he was proclaiming for which he was going to lay down his life not too much longer after writing this letter. The heart of the gospel message is the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus. That is why Paul suffered the things he did. It's why he went to no, spared no expense, spared no effort uh, in ministering the gospel all over the world in Asia Minor. It was to the ministry of the gospel in particular that Paul was called first and foremost as an apostle. And likewise, it was to the ministry of the gospel that Timothy and every true pastor today is called to serve in as well. You know, it's, it's easy, um, you might know, it, it's easy to get kind of caught up in the busyness of life and ministry and kind of lose sight of the fact that that's what the ministry is about. That is the main thing that we have to keep first and foremost before our minds as pastors, elders, churchmen, and the like, that the gospel of Christ is the main thing. Uh, But there's probably more to the reason Paul put it this way that he does here in verse 1. John Stott helpfully points out this. He says, The gospel is good news for dying sinners that God has promised them life in Jesus Christ it seems particularly appropriate that as death stares the apostle in the face, he should here define it as a promise of life, for this is what it is. I don't think there's any, there can be any doubt that that's what Paul is thinking here. When he, when, he tells, when he reminds Timothy of his gospel message that he was called to proclaim, he's applying it to himself here. He's going to be martyred not long after writing this letter So what does he call the gospel? The promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus. He had to cling to that promise as much as anybody he ever preached to, especially at the moment when he was writing this epistle. The promise of life for all who are in Christ by faith is not just a matter for the benefit of Paul's hearers. It was for the benefit of Paul himself. And it was no doubt the good news of the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus that consoled and cheered Paul's heart as he awaited his execution under Nero. You may know that according to church history, he was beheaded under Caesar Nero somewhere in the mid-60s in the first century. And what was his crime? Preaching the gospel everywhere throughout the Roman Empire. Everywhere he could, he preached, and he was executed for it. Paul knew and taught the same truth that we have heard uh, so many centuries after his day in question one of the Heidelberg Catechism that his only comfort in life and in death was that he, Paul, was not his own, but belonged body and soul in life and in death to his faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He, he knew he had the promise of life in Christ, and so he faced death with that knowledge in mind. And so I ask this morning, does the promise of life, spiritual life, eternal life, resurrection life, the life of the world to come, that we confess in the Nicene Creed every first Sunday of the month, does that promise of life comfort you in all your distresses, even in the face of death? You know, um, I was telling someone the other day, I don't think I can remember a time in my life, and certainly not a time in my ministry here at this church, where we've seen more death, more people on the brink of death from disease and whatnot. It seems like every, at every time we're having multiple people that we're praying for who are not doing well. Uh, does the promise of life in Christ comfort you and strengthen you in times like this? Like that's that's where the rubber meets the road. That's the whole point. If it doesn't, something's not right. If it doesn't give you comfort and strength in these times, um, we're not understanding it the way that we that we should. Are you in Christ by faith, so that the promise of life in Him is your is yours? The, you know the promise of life that's in Christ is not some Vague, general, generic thing for people out there. You know, is is it a promise of life that you have accepted to yourself? Do you count it as being in Christ as the promise of life to you in the life of the world to come? You know, God promises eternal life to everyone, every sinner who believes in Christ for salvation from sin. That's what He promises—the life that's in Christ. Well, the second thing that we see here in this opening. Greeting of the letter, and we see it throughout the letter really, but is Paul's love for his son in the faith. Paul's love for his son in the faith. Timothy, he says, to verse 2, To Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, this, this was a public letter. It's why it's in our Bibles. It was not just for Timothy's eyes only, it was not just personal correspondence for his own private edification and instruction which explains kind of why you might, maybe you've noticed this, there's kind of this strange mix of formality uh, and affection in this letter. They're both blended together and that should be instructive for us as well. But, you know, if it were just intended for Timothy's eyes only, if this was a private letter for him to read, put in his pocket and keep keep on his shelf for his own use, uh, a lot of things that Paul says in the opening greeting, he wouldn't have even had to say. He would not have had to, uh, for instance, go into detail and tell Timothy as if Timothy didn't know, I'm an apostle of Christ by the will of God. Did Timothy not know that from personal experience? Did Timothy not walk and serve with Paul? Who knows how many years Paul? Timothy knew that very well. And so the fact that Paul identifies himself that way is a hint that this was a public letter to be read to the church and other churches is a reason that we are studying it in our own day. Uh, Calvin himself notes that in the opening words in verse 1 where Paul calls himself an apostle, he these words quote show clearly that Paul had in view not Timothy alone but others through him. Paul intended that letter to be read to the churches and not just to Timothy himself. Likewise, Paul encourages Timothy by calling himself calling him his beloved child or beloved son in the faith. And you know that that is certainly for Timothy's own encouragement, but I think it's also. I think it's reasonable to assume, knowing it's a public letter, this was his way of making sure others who heard the letter read held Timothy in high esteem, that they did not take his authority as a as a pastor, as a minister of the gospel lightly. You know, the temptation might be, well, we had Paul here, an apostle, and here's this kid. Now Timothy was young. Paul has to tell him, let nobody look down on your youth, or let no one despise your youth. In First Timothy, right? So Timothy probably didn't have the same kind of presence that Paul had. He was much younger, and Paul would not have them take him any bit more lightly than they took Paul himself. He wanted them to take him seriously and esteem him for his work and his office. That being said, notice the sincere affection that Paul has for Timothy. Again, he calls him his true child in the faith, 1 Timothy 1, 2. It's what he calls him consistently. And, you know, think about this. Paul has some very difficult things to tell Timothy in this letter. He really does. Very serious, weighty, heavy matters in this letter. And so he begins it by reminding him of his affection for him. He calls him his, his true son in the faith and his, his true child, uh, his spiritual child in Christ. And so, you know, maybe that's because he has these hard things to say. He wants Timothy to have no doubt that he loves him sincerely and these things should be taken as from a father to a son. That's the way that he's writing these things uh, to him. Uh, has, you know, I have to ask, has God in his grace, maybe in the past, maybe recently, has he used you in some way to bring about the conversion of someone? He probably has. You may not think of yourself as an evangelist, but maybe you've shared the gospel with someone, maybe more than one person, and they've come to, to faith in Christ. Maybe somebody not in your flesh and blood family, Maybe not a relative. Maybe it was a relative. Do you not think of them now in some ways as your family in the faith? And even in a special, a more special way than that. Like every believer is your brother and sister in Christ. But for someone that God may have used you to bring about their conversion, God uses means, right? Do you not think of them in a more special way? And if that's the case, that's a good thing. Don't be ashamed to think of them that way. Don't be ashamed to tell them you think of them that way. Or maybe the shoes on the other foot, maybe, you know, maybe this is probably much more likely that God used someone else in some special way, whether a pastor or a friend or a family member, to lead you to faith in Christ. If so, you know, do they hold a special place in your heart as a mother or father in the faith? If so, thank God for them. You know, God God has not only chosen you for eternal life through faith in Christ, if you are a believer this morning, But he also has elected the means by which he brings that to pass. He chooses the ends and the means as well. And so thank God for whoever that may have been who has brought you to faith in Christ by sharing the gospel with you, either privately or up uh, in a sermon. Well, the last thing that we'll spend a little bit of time on this morning is in verse two, where Paul tells Timothy grace, mercy and peace from God, the father and Christ Jesus, our Lord. You know Paul, you might know when you read the other epistles to the churches as well as individuals, he opens his letters similarly to that, I'm talking about grace and peace or grace, mercy, and peace. Um, but again, don't let the fact that Paul says something often lead us to kind of disregard it or think not much of it. We should there must be a reason that Paul repeats it so often at the beginning of his epistles, both to churches in general as well as to people and individuals like Timothy and Titus now. You know, Paul tells him in chapter 1, in in no uncertain terms, that he prayed for him. He prayed for Timothy in his ministry. He prayed for the church in which he served. And even even as he reminds Timothy in verses 3 through 5, which we'll get to, Lord willing, next week. But he also gives Timothy, at the beginning of this difficult letter, kind of an opening benediction of sorts. A blessing of sorts, much like a prayer in which he points, not only points Timothy to the sustaining power for his ministry, but also... In effect, asks for these things, these gifts and graces, to be poured out on Timothy from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. And why is that? You know, it's not just a formality. It's not just, you know, like when you're, you know, nobody writes letters these days. But when you write a letter, dear so and so, it's just a, we think that's just what you write. You know, you're not sitting there thinking, dear, you know, how much you love. But you know, we just, but that's not what Paul's doing here. This is not just some kind of formality and so we should we should take from this no true gospel ministry can be sustained apart from first the grace of God in Christ no ministry can hope for a single convert to Christ except by the grace of God and the work of the Holy Spirit we are dependent upon God's grace in ministry from beginning to end from from start to finish in our ministry of making disciples without that no disciples will be made it will not happen only by God's grace Secondly, no true gospel ministry can be sustained apart from the mercy of God in Christ that Paul talks about in verse 2. It's the mercy of God in Christ by which we are saved in the first place and we are no less the objects of God's mercies throughout our, our pilgrimage on this earth until the day he calls us home. You will never stop needing the mercy of God in your life whether you be a pastor or whatever you may be as a believer. You will always are in need of God's grace and God's Mercy. In fact, in Romans chapter 12, what does Paul point to? Before he tells us to not be conformed to this world, he says, you know, Beloved, by the mercies of God, by the compassions of God, those that is to be the motivation for living the Christian life and for having our minds renewed, that our, that our lives might be transformed. Thirdly, no true gospel ministry can be sustained apart from the peace of God in Christ. Paul's own present circumstances in writing this letter bear that out. Is think about this: Paul can write a letter like this on death row, basically. He can write a letter like this with very little seeming concern for himself. It's it's a lot like the, the letter to the Philippians. You read that 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 letter also was written from prison, and what's the dominant theme in that letter? Joy and rejoicing. And he's throughout the letter, Paul's worried about them and concerned about them and their joy in the faith and all these things, and the same thing seems to be the case here in 2 Timothy. Paul's on death row, and he's more concerned about Timothy and the churches than he is apparently his own well-being. You know, Paul could write a letter like this. Uh, is pretty amazing, but it's only by the grace of God in the gospel. John Stott, again, summarizes this threefold benediction, if we can call it that, this way. He says, we may perhaps summarize these three blessings of God's love as being grace to the worthless, mercy to the helpless, and peace to the restless, while God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord together constitute the one spring from which this threefold stream flows forth. I think that's a good, good way to, to put it and summarize it. Up. May God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord be pleased to multiply these three blessings to us as we seek to serve him, in this church and our generation and make the gospel of Christ known to our neighbors here in Ramona. Let's, let's pray.